Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Over the last 40 years, the U.S. penal system has grown at an unprecedented rate, five times larger than in the past and grossly out of scale with the rest of the world. In The Punishment Imperative, The Rise and Failure of Mass Incarceration in America, published by New York University Press in 2013, criminologists Todd Clear and Natasha Frost argue that America's move to mass incarceration from the 1960s to the early 2000s was more than just a response to crime or a collection of policies policies adopted in isolation. It was a grand social experiment. Tracing a wide array of trends related to the criminal justice system, this book charts the rise of penal severity in America and speculates that a variety of forces have finally come together to bring this great social experiment to an end. Todd Clear is University Professor of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, Newark. Todd is also the founder of Rutgers University, Newark's New Jersey Scholarship and Transformative Education in Prisons, the NJ Step Consortium, um, which is actually how I came to know him. I'm so glad and honored uh, that uh, his book has brought him to our program. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. Thanks very much for that introduction. I appreciate it. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Well, so I've been in the uh, criminology business for over 40 years. And um, and, uh, during that 40-year period, the United States has been really uh, an outlier in every way on the issue of uh, punishing people who have been convicted of crimes. And uh, early in my career, I worked hard on issues of, uh, uh, of uh, alternatives to incarceration. And I had this idea that if we could strengthen and uh, make more effective uh, various alternatives to incarceration, um, judges would use them and the prison population wouldn't grow. And of course, that idea is, enti- as the book says, entirely wrong-headed. Um, uh, and, um, and the prison population has grown in the United States uh, until very recently, no matter what else happened, when we were at war, when we were at peace, when the economy was strong, when it was weak, uh, when we had a lot of people coming into the uh, crime-prone ages, when those, when that portion of the population was declining, the prison population grew. And um, early in my career, I was uh, involved in various groups that that were interested in prison abolition. And so the irony is that whatever the opposite of abolition is, that's what we did. And, um, and so I've been interested in that question uh, for my entire career. And, it, and I'm particularly interested right now because there seems to be this um, coming together of a variety of, uh, of forces uh, uh, that signal that the 40-year the, uh, period that the United States um, single-mindedly grew its prison population uh, is coming to an end, and uh, and so 
uh, now really is a time to try to understand what we did and what its impact was. Right. And you refer to the, the rise of the, the mass incarceration as um, the punishment imperative. What do you mean by, by this term? So for uh, decades, really, no matter what the problem was that, uh, that any uh, political or social scientist was trying to address, the requirement was that we had to ratchet up punishment. Uh, so the punishment imperative means that no matter how, how we were talking about crime, how we were thinking about crime, the problem was we didn't punish enough. Uh, so the, uh, the nightly news would lead with a story about a person out on parole with the implication that uh, the person shouldn't have been paroled. Um, there was, a, there was a, uh, when the California pl- passed its law three strikes throughout, what it was saying was the third felony, you go to prison for life. Um, some people in the South started saying we should actually have two strikes throughout. Why did you get a third? Why should you get a third strike? And uh, not to not to, to be outdone, other politicians started saying, "Well, how about one strike? You're out." And uh, and then literally there was a proposal on the table. It didn't go anywhere in 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 Georgia, where a person said, "Well, we should really have no strikes, and you're out." I mean. You should just be out. <laughs> and um, uh, so, uh, I remember one time I was driving through uh, when I when I moved from from New Jersey to Florida. I was driving through Georgia on election day, and I was listening to the election ads. And people who were running for county clerk were arguing on it. Uh, were uh, floating ads about get tough on crime. People who have nothing to do with crime policy, uh, and uh, and it, and and the, the great example of this was, of course. Um, Bill Clinton, who who uh, out toughed the tough guys, and uh, uh, and and really took it, it was a partisan issue, Republicans versus Democrats, much like it's beginning to look uh, right now. Um, but he was able to out tough the Republicans and not look like a weak uh, Democrat on crime, and so as a result, um, got was able to avoid. The, the consequences, but it was the punishment imperative simply means that no matter what the problem is in in the area of criminal justice, the answer is always we don't punish enough, and so we have to punish more. Right. And when did the punishment imperative begin, and how many people were under correctional control at the height of this um, uh, period? So let me throw out a few numbers. I, I, these numbers are are from I'm working from memory, so they might be a little bit off. Uh, but in the 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 last between uh, prison population grew every year between 1971 and uh, and uh, 2000 uh, and and 10. So um, uh, so every year. Uh, in the United States, we had more prisoners at the end of the year than we had at the beginning of the year. Incarceration rates grew by fivefold. Uh, just to give you one example, in 71, there were about 200,000 people in the entire U.S. prison system. Uh, and uh, today, there are more than that number serving life sentences. So there's a permanent population today of uh, people in prison uh, that is larger than the population that started. And the crime rate today, by the way, the, uh, according to the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation Uniform Crime, is about the same as it was in 1971. So it hasn't had much to do with crime. Um, 
I think actually that's the most important thing to get off the table. The, we grew the prison population as a way of dealing with things that had, we talked about it as though it was a crime policy, but it was really a policy about a lot of other things at the time. Um, uh, the, uh, in, in the early 1970s, uh, uh, prison populations are produced by how many people go to prison and how long they stay. It's really not a, it's really not rocket science. If you want to have a, a large prison population, put more people in prison and have them stay longer. And that's, and that's what we did. Um, in the early 1970s, three quarters of the people convicted of a felony got some sort of probation sentence. Uh, about a quarter went to prison. Uh, by the, the uh, height of the, of the Get Tough movement, that number had been reversed. Three quarters of people convicted of felonies went to prison and one fourth went on to probation. And for a portion of the people who went on to probation, jail was a condition of their probation. So they served a jail term before they went on to probation. Um, uh, in the early 1970s, the, the median length of stay is was about 15 months in prison. By the, at the height of the incarceration boom, uh, it had doubled to 30 months. So if you triple the rate that, that people go to prison and double how long they stay, you can easily get a much larger prison population even without changing crime at all. And that's exactly what we did. Now, crime in the interim, crime did go up and it did come down. Uh, but, um, uh, but today we have this huge prison population with about the same crime rate we had in the 70s. Um, and, uh, and there was no, at, during this time period, there was no argument that really worked or had any salience that, that questioned the wisdom of punishment. Um, uh, and uh, the irony was that, that it wasn't working empirically uh, on its own terms, uh, but it still was working conceptually as a frame, as a way of framing the social problem. And so politicians who needed to have something to say about crime, this is what they said. Right. And um, just thinking of the costs, I mean, you're describing a massive explosion in the prison population. Uh, roughly speaking, how much did this cost the taxpayers uh, during this period? Well, there's two ways of looking at the costs. Uh, one is how many dollars are um, committed to the correctional system. Uh, and uh, uh, that number is somewhere between 80 and 100 billion a year. Um, but another way of looking at costs is, is opportunity costs. Uh, you know, what, what could have happened had we done this a different way? And so we bought prisons instead of paying for higher education. In fact, there's some very famous graphs that show, uh, the contribution in the state of California to the high, uh, to the state's, uh, um, universities over time and the contribution in the state of California to the state's prison system. And the graph is, is, uh, as one number, as one proportion goes down, the other goes up. And, and, um, it's pretty clear that, um, one of the costs of growing the prison population in California was that people felt they had less revenue to be able to, uh, uh, give to the, to the universities. And so, in the in the seventies, California's university system, which was one of the finest in the country, maybe the, the finest in the country, was not expensive for a person to attend. Uh, by now, uh, uh, it is 
it is like other universities, extremely expensive system for, for state residents and for an out-of-state resident. It's like to attending a private school, private university. Right, right. Really a tremendous impact of, of the uh, expense on, on prisons. Um, what I was, kind I, of a, I, I want to sure. say a couple of things. We didn't fix roads. You know, we didn't uh, uh, create it, uh, make it, the internet available across the country. I lived for a year in South Africa. You can't go anywhere in South Africa without having access to the to the internet. You know, uh, and and now I live in Montana. And if I'm driving downtown, there are a couple of places where I where they're just simply dead spots. And and if I'm on Wi-Fi, it's gone. You know, if I I'm, if I'm on the internet, it's gone. So the the things we didn't do. At the same time, we were making this enormous investment in these permanent places, uh, prisons, uh, permanent facilities. Uh, you know, our our remarkable statements about what our priorities were at the time. Right. And what kind of offenses were people being sent to prison for? I mean, how how serious were were their offenses? Well, the, so you can divide the the get tough movement into eras. Uh, and the the first era was the war on drugs, um, and uh, at the beginning of the seventies, nineteen seventies, it was rare for a person to go to prison for a drug possession crime. Um, uh, a person had to have a lot of <laughs> possess a lot of drugs to be eligible for prison. Um, uh, but then we began uh, to have this war on drugs. And uh, and again, the the punishment imperative is, hey, if you're going to do something about drugs, the one thing you can do is punish people more. There's all the other options are off the table. And uh, and so um, uh, people start uh, places started passing legislation uh, penalizing possession of small amounts of, of drugs. So in the early part of the 70s. Uh, uh, less than uh, 10% of the prison intake would be somebody going into prison on a drug-related crime. By the height of the drug war, it was more than half. And uh, uh, and, it, and, it, and since every state has a different system, different states had, had different levels of impact. In some states, two-thirds of the people going into the prison system were there uh, because of a possession of drugs. Um, so today... In, I can walk out my front door in Montana and go buy marijuana. But I remember the time that I spoke to a person in the Indiana State prison system who was looking at a 20-year sentence for possession of marijuana. For a small amount of marijuana. Yes. Wow. A 17-year-old kid. Wow. Wow. <laughs> really, really... Shocking and disturbing uh, stuff. Um, we were talking about kind of the national rates of incarceration and 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 so on. But were there were were there differences among the U- U.S. states? Were some states locking up significantly more people than other states during the the height of of this period? Absolutely. Um, and uh, it's interesting to note that some states have maintained comparatively low incarceration rates, even during this entire period. For example, South Dakota, <laughs> for whatever reason, uh, is a low incarceration state. Um, Massachusetts is a low incarceration state. Um, and um, uh, and incarceration rates tend to uh, play out regionally. The South incarcerates a, a much higher proportion of its citizens 
than other parts of the country. And so year in and year out, there was this kind of contest between Oklahoma, Arkansas, Alabama, and Mississippi to see which one had the highest incarceration rate. And over time, they were always up there in the top in the top five kind of thing. But uh, uh, sometimes Arkansas would be the winner and sometimes Oklahoma would be the winner. But to, to give you a sense of the scale, uh, those the incarceration rates in those states could be as much as five times higher than the incarceration rates in the low incarceration states. So there was not any actual, the punishment imperative was a, was a social paradigm, a policy paradigm. But in fact, what we have is 50 different uh, punishment policies, 51 counting the federal jurisdiction. And each state and, and each jurisdiction has had its own strategy for implementing a, a punishment focus. All right. And I mean, has there, was, was there discussion at the time, like, you know, policymakers in one state looking at the policies of another state and saying, why is your state so high or why is your state so low? I mean, it seems like an obvious point of comparison. There was very, very little, surprisingly little. The kind of thing that would happen would be that a state would pass a law that uh, that had a lot of um, uh, popularity, and then that law would travel to other states. Uh, um, so, uh, and the and the irony is that many of these laws were passed by legislatures that would never have to pay for by people who voted who would never have to to to. Uh, uh, deal with paying for them. So for example, in New Jersey, New Jersey passed a law that second time felons of a particular type would serve a minimum of 25 years. Um, and um, uh, and they had already been serving, uh, average serve, uh, serving 10 years. So what the law had the effect of doing was increasing punishment by 15 years over 10 years. It sounds like, you know, I'm going to make you do 25 years, you're going to really Get tough, but what it really—the difference really wasn't 25 years instead of none. It was 25 years instead of 10 years, and so it didn't ha- didn't kick in for 10 years. So for a full decade, it didn't have any impact. That law for a full decade, <laughs> and uh, but what the laws the laws real impact was not uh, not uh, th- what I just said. It was to get some legislators to be able to talk about that they had been tough on crime. And if you said to them, what you did doesn't have any effect for the next 10 years, they would have said, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. the, anyway. the, we're, we're, I mean, I think that's a fascinating example. I mean, you know, uh, uh, to, look out for a, to look at for a second, like were the legislators ignorant of the way that the law would be implemented or were they indifferent to it? Like they, did they did is it that they didn't know or they didn't care? So um, I think they felt hand. Well, I think there was a wide range. I mean, uh, some of the true believers believed in deterrence in a way that was almost magical. Uh, they had this. They walked around with this image of people who broke the law as calculating, uh, you know, their lives and living their lives according to self interested calculations and if i just made it so that you it was it, it, it was obvious that it wouldn't be a smart thing to break the law that you would be smart and when i put it that way you can see the the problem with the analysis but 
most people don't break the law because if they thought it through and thought, well, I think that's a good idea. I think I'll do that, <laughs> you know? And um, uh, so, uh, for example, and, and legislator, so some legislators were like this true believer model, but many of them felt handcuffed by the time that they found themselves being political leaders in. So I remember working with one state where um, uh, they passed a law, a engaged in the drug war, they passed a law that said three will get you three, which was uh, three ounces of anything. And if you possess three ounces of any prohibited substance, it will give you a mandatory three years in prison. And they, they announced this law to great fanfare on the streets in front of the in front of the legislature uh, a big a big um, a press moment and uh, and we left from those steps to go back to a room where they where they all sat down and say how the hell are we going to deal with this <laughs> what are we going to do how are we going to pay for it what's it, you know <laughs> and so they sort of knew that it didn't make any sense but they didn't feel like they had many choices Right, and it's interesting when you when you when you were just describing uh, these laws and the the kind of uh, the underlying assumption that 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 people who are involved in criminal behavior are sitting down almost like with a calculator and you know making these highly highly uh, kind of um, rational decisions about their criminal behavior. It made me think of the kind of fallacy in the social sciences in general about. Uh, homo economicus, the idea that human beings are these kind of uh, economic tabulating machines where we just sit there and make, you know, kind of rational, uh, 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 almost mathematical um, calculations about costs and benefits and then decide to, you know, our behavior based on those calculations. And that that's not, that's just not the way that, that human beings to a large extent operate. And so uh, I, I raises the question, to what extent were, were scholars, especially so, uh, social scientists, involved either leading or, or, or uh, you know, um, articulating these kinds of policies uh, related to the, the rise of uh, mass incarceration? Well, back in the day, it was hard to find a social scientist or scholar who thought this was a bad idea. <laughs> That's what's so <laughs> ironic about this. So there were two kinds of there were two kinds of uh, sets of arguments going on. One was an argument about incapacitation, uh, and the belief, you know the the statement was if a person's in prison, they can't shoot your sister. That was uh, that was John Diulio said that uh, wrote a, a famous editorial that appeared in the New York Times: "A thug in jail can't shoot my sister." And um, uh, he was actually quoting another politician. And, um, uh, and uh, really serious and, and, and well-respected social scientists like Al Bloomstein and, and others were, were uh, very much taken with this uh, idea that there is, a, there is a, a knowable rate of criminal behavior that people engage, engage in when they're on the streets. And the idea was that the world is divided into two groups of people, people who are, don't commit any crimes at all when they're on the streets and those who do. And that those who do have a rate, it was call, actually called lambda. It was an unknown that was that's mathematically people tried to estimate lambda, the rate of lambda. And it was a rate of the number of, of crimes that an active criminal commits. 
And if there, if that, and the idea was that that person's in prison, whatever that thing is, lambda, uh, uh, won't happen. Right? Crimes will be prevented. And the uh, second point that these scientists, social scientists, made. By the way, it's, it's a reasonable idea. Uh, and the second point they made is that the that the value of lambda is quite skewed, so that a very small number of people commit a very large number, a disproportionately large number of those crimes. And this led to this idea of not just incapacitation, but selective incapacitation, that if you could identify who those people were and lock them up, um, you would prevent a ton of crimes. And there was a study done by a couple of RAND researchers that estimated that the average number of crimes committed by an active criminal. So you, you've got everybody who commits no crimes in one group, and you've got all the active criminals in another group and the active criminals, the average number per year was 570 something. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. So there's this <laughs> two, there's this two groups of people and they somehow they walk around the streets together and they interact and they, they engage in commerce and they do all these things together. But on the issue of crime behavior, one is, one is doing a couple of crimes a day and one, one and a half crimes a day. And, and the other is doing none. On the average, so you got since a skew, you know. It's, anyway, that was a number, and the Justice Department, by the way, William Barr, that was his first term as Attorney General. I knew he was going to be a disaster when when <laughs> Trump brought him back. I mean, it was it was really he was he was one of our worst Attorney Generals in his first time, <laughs> but he actually improved his inabilities in his second round. Anyway, that editorial comment. I apologize for that. He's he's hawking this book now, saying, "I did the best I could." Oh my God! Anyway, um, so uh, and it might have been the best he could, you know, given him. Anyway, uh, back to back to something I know something about. So so uh, um, uh, the Justice Department uh, uh, sent out this um, this uh, report, this study. So I happen to have a bunch of federal grants in those days, and I know the review processes of anything you wanted to publish. They had social, you know, social scientists would sit down and they would critique your work. And before you could get the grant or get the grant report published or any of that stuff done, you would have to go through this review process and deal with crit critiques. And it was pretty disciplined. But Ed Zedlevsky, uh, who was an economist in the Justice Department, sent out a report on in selective incapacitation with no reviews. And it was distributed so widely. Uh, I, 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 my name was on a few mailing lists. It must have been because I got four copies in the mail. And <laughs> so, and, and it was this idea that, that prisons pay for themselves. Uh, because if you lock up enough people, you prevent enough crime, you save enough money on the crime side, that this is an economic miracle. <clears throat> you know, that uh, we can really, that prisons are cheap compared to crime. And so you can save a lot of money. And um, uh, what's ironic is if you take that number 572, the difference in the number of people in prison between early 1970s and the, and the late 1980s is about a million. Uh, so we went from 200,000 to 1.2 million in, in about, uh, in about uh, uh, 10 years, 12 years. So if you take a million people and multiply that times 570, which is the number of crimes you're supposed to be preventing by 
locking them up, you get a number that's bigger than the total number of crimes reported in the United States that year. So it just it was magical thinking, uh, but it but it but it was done by social scientists. Now now not all scientists were in the same frame. So for example, Al Bloomstein was very critical of that work uh, because he thought the number was too big. And and since and by the way. Uh, an average number for a very skewed variable is not very meaningful. So, for example, if I'm, if if um, there's a, a group of college professors sitting around having coffee, and um, you know, and uh, uh, who's the guy who who founded Microsoft? Uh, um, blanking on his name, you know, the billionaire. The anyway, Bill Gates. Yeah, if Bill Gates walks into the room and there's a dozen the average person in that room is a billionaire, <laughs> right? Suddenly, so this is this is a problem with the with these this lambda idea, uh, and not only that, um, but uh, if you lock up a million people, you're probably getting all those high rate guys, and still crime is continuing to go up. Something else is going on there, you know. Crime is continuing to go up. You're locking up more people. It would it would seem to generate this idea that the model somehow is is not working right. Um, the, uh, the, but the other people, and this was uh, this was a guy named uh, Jamie Fox at Northeastern and um, and John DiUlio, who I just cited. They they developed this idea of super predators. So there was this notion that there was these these young people being born into poverty. Uh, with 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 no mothers in the home, you know, with no father figure in the home, uh, being raised by their grandmothers, and they were going to be, they were going to have no, no holds barred, and uh, you know, uh, terrible, violent people, uh, super predators, and the super predator idea led led to these this sort of no strikes you're out model. Wow, if you can say this person's going to be a super predator, by God, we should lock them up now, um, and. The, and by the way, both Jamie Foxx and and uh, John DiUlio have have publicly regretted their their the editorials they wrote, but they were pretty influential at the time. People were scared, and um, uh, and this so that so we had one set of social scientists who were sort of unemotionally telling us that the world is divided into active criminals and not active criminals, and the active criminals are pretty active. Another group of social scientists tells me quite emotionally, and let me tell you, there's a horde of them being born right now. And by the way, you can guess what their racial ethnic makeup was. But anyway, they're being born right now, and they're on their way. <laughs> Watch out, baby! You know. And so there was no, uh, there was no sort of calm down. <laughs> it's going to be okay. That that didn't happen in the in the policy world or in the academic world and i was one of a handful of people critiquing the growth of the prison system i i, I this is probably a bit of an a, a exaggeration but i think the the active publishing writing social scientists who were arguing this was a big policy mistake you could probably count them on the fingers of one or two hands the rest of the criminology world was all convinced you know Prison growth was needed. Um, you know, uh, uh, James Q. Wilson wrote a book thinking about crime, and the only thing he could think about crime was if you lock up more criminals, you get less crime. That's what he, that's what he wrote about crime. Anyway, so the point was, social scientists were were on board. They were totally on board. 
and uh, to our, I think, to our detriment. I think we owe, I, Bill Clinton says, said he owes the country a, an apology for what he did with the 94 Crime Act, and the rest of us all owe the, uh, all owe the country an apology for the way we just got on board with that. With that right. I, that I'm just stuff. curious, again, uh, I, I just find it so fascinating to think about how the ideas related to the, the the punishment imperative were circulating or promoted in academic circles. And you just mentioned that there may be a handful or a dozen scholars during this period who were, you know, focusing on crime and, and prisons who were opposing it. I'm, I'm just curious, like, do you remember, I mean, were there like actual, um, um, interactions at academic conferences or something where someone would get up and give a whole paper about Lambda and all of the scientific uh, mathematical reasons why prisons pay for themselves and it's going to reduce crime. And then you or someone, you know, one of your colleagues raises his hand and says, wait a minute, this is totally wrong, you know, and, and did this kind of thing happen? And, 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 and also like, whether in person or, you know, through academic writing, how would people, other scholars respond to your criticisms of the, this model of, of, of the, the punishment imperative? What, what did they, what did they make of your approaches? Well, so most people who were critiquing uh, the growth of the prison system were doing so on a, on a sort of ethical, uh, philosophical basis. Uh, and so the social scientists were saying basically, yeah, well, the, you may not like it, but it's just the truth. There are bad people out there doing bad things, and if you put them in prison, they don't do bad things. And and what happened was over time, because because the numbers didn't follow the argument, because we were the prison system was exploding, and at the time, crime was going up very rapidly, particularly violent, violent crime. Because the because the mo- you know, so it, the model's wheels fell off in a way, um, some people, good hard empiricists, began began looking at this more critically. Um, Bill Spellman at the University of Texas was one of them, and uh, uh, and um, uh, so for example, one of the things we lo- that as the science got more sophisticated, one of the things we learned is that um, uh, most crimes are committed by people in groups. And if you lock up one or two members of the group, it doesn't change the number of crimes that group is responsible for, and it may actually encourage them to recruit more people into the group. Um, So the incapacitation argument, one person out of the picture, the crime stop, lacks a lot of grounded reality in the way crimes actually occur. Um, other people did some really interesting models of the effect of prison stay on. So there was this idea that, that, that there's a, a trajectory of over the life course of involvement in criminal behavior. Um, or, uh, and, and it, one of the most permanent findings in criminology is the relationship between age and, and criminal behavior. So people tend to, to get started in, in illegal behavior in their early teens, it peaks in late teens or early twenties. Really, late teens, early twenties, uh, and and for and there's even some models that suggest it's really not seventeen, eighteen is the peak. Really, not in the twenties and thirties, and then it begins to decline over time as a group. And there were some people who who did some empirical work suggesting that 
that these spells people spend in prison are really time out. They don't, it's not like you're aging in prison and you're going to come out and be less criminally active, that you pick up exactly where you were on this age crime curve. And, and, and it's like a wasted time in your, in your mature maturation process because you don't mature. Um, we also know that we started sending people back to prison for things that had nothing to do with crime. You know, um, one of the most common arrest, uh, um, uh, arrest uh, complaints in the city of Chicago is that a person who has a, who is uh, uh, not allowed to be consorting with known criminals is consorting with known criminals. <laughs> in other words, you're with your brother and, um, uh, and it's a very common arrest variable and it and people get sent back to prison for that uh and that's not a crime actually <laughs> you know to be with somebody who has a criminal record is is not a crime it's, i'm glad because i i spent a lot of time with people with criminal records in my life and um uh, uh, so what what happened was that 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 the social science sort of ethic which is to is to push against known truths uh, began to take over and uh, and some of those questions really were good ones. The best, the, the best was the was this idea that uh, if there if lambda has a value of five hundred and some, how come we don't have zero crime? You know, and and it began to you know the, this king had no clothes. Uh, it, it began to take some of the power of it, but it was really but really for the for the the biggest part of the. Of the get tough movement was in the 80s and early and early 90s and for that period of time social scientists were fellow travelers uh, we're on board for the, for the most this part. yeah for, for the most the part, part. Yeah. Right. all right and you mentioned um or you sort of hinted at the racial composition of the the prison population what was the demographic breakdown of the prison population during this period well so um and again uh i uh African Americans were about twelve percent of the population. They were more than half of the people in prison on a given day. So, uh, uh, blacks, black men, were six times more likely to be incarcerated than than uh, white men. That for their given their population and, and their their prevalence in the regular population, uh, Latinos were four times more likely to be incarcerated. So this. It, um, this was clearly a policy that anyone with any um, uh, uh, anyone who cared about racial justice, who thought about a growing prison system, uh, would would have known that if we're going to grow the prison system, we're going to increase racial inequality. And Bruce Western, a, 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 um, a sociologist at uh, at Harvard, he's not actually he's now at Columbia. Um, uh, showed empirically how the growth of the prison system, because it was concentrated on people of color, particularly poor people of color and men, uh, had the effect of exacerbating economic inequalities between whites and blacks in, the, in this country. And it makes sense because um, uh, uh, w one of the things that we know is that, that going to prison reduces your uh, lifetime earnings by about 40%. So if you send a lot of black men to prison, you're just reducing their ability to be economically, uh, economically participate in their, 
in their in their families and in their in their neighborhoods and communities. Right. And um, you you talk about how the prison, the, the punishment imperative was a grand social experiment. What, what do you mean by that? Um, we thought the narrative was that uh, crime had, and this was a Nixon generated narrative, crime had gotten out of control. And, and the only way to get it back under control was to grow the formal institutions of social control, particularly the prison system. And if we did that, we would solve the crime problem. And um, by the by the early 2000s, uh, we began to know, you know, actually, crime started dropping in the 1990s, but the prison population was continued to increase for another decade after that. And um, and what we began to realize in the by the by the, the turn of the century was that there was a real disconnect between how many people we had in prison and what our social goals were, particularly goals of social equality, access to goods and services, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, and so um, uh, uh, the 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 energy left the movement, the get tough movement. Uh, Interestingly, when when people stopped being upset about crime because crime was dropping. Right. And to step back a drop, what were some of the main factors that actually gave rise to the Get Tough on Crime uh, movement beginning in the 1970s that gave birth to the uh, you know, a punishment imperative? Well, so this, the 60s were a... Uh, uh, we're a time of a lot of intense social conflict, uh, uh, anti-war uh, uh, and um, civil rights movement and uh, the, the reaction against civil rights movement, the, the passing of the civil rights legislation, uh, and then uh, urban, um, uh, you know, urban uh, uh, violence and uh, uh, particularly racial, uh, uh, racial, racially based violence, like uh, we call them riots. I don't think that's the best term for it, but uh, um, unrest is probably a better term. Uh, but what happened in Newark? What happened in Gary? What happened in in, in Watts? What, and so on. And what and and a um, uh, a general uh, social argument developed that things had gotten out of control. And the formal institutions of the society had to get them back under control. And it wasn't just crime, but crime was a leading indicator. And uh, uh, and so uh, uh, um, uh, it was as though there were two camps. One camp saying, you know, um, disorder has gotten to be the main central problem for year year after year. When you when you had the you know. Uh, the, these these surveys of uh, uh, what people were most concerned about crime was always number one or number two on the list. Even when crime was dropping, it was number one or number two on the list. And so there was this idea that um, uh, that disorder of all of its varieties, including crime, had gotten out of control and had to be uh, put under control. And um, and so you were either on the side of getting things back under control. Or you were on the side of things being out of control. Well, 
<laughs> Tell me how you're going to win that debate if you're in favor of things being out of control. So that was the way the the, the problem was defined. And so, of course, if you walk along saying the way to get it under control is to put more people in prison, that argument, you know, is, is hard to hard to uh, dispute. Right. And what were the uh, were there political and economic factors that also promoted this uh, punitive turn? Well, some, I mean, we're still, we're, we're seeing them now. I mean, uh, uh, the economy was changing from an economy based on jobs in, 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 in factories and, and, and jobs making things to jobs involved, uh, uh, you know, education and training. And that was harder to distribute across social classes, uh, you know, and we also have the, this uh, in, uh, this ma- uh, manifestation of that, which is people moving to cities and people leaving er- uh, rural areas. Ironically, incarceration, you know, we think of crime as a big city problem, but incarceration rates in urban areas are actually today higher than they are in cities. And um, and I think it's because incarceration is what you do when you don't have anything else to do with a person. And uh and these rural areas have been decimated by the economic factors that have uh, that have uh, eaten away at their capacity to to support good lives. Uh, and but I also think that there was a um, you know the reactionary um, politics uh, after the Civil Rights Act was passed, and that really when when Richard Nixon f- figured out. That you know you can use the specter of the scary black man as a way of getting elected, and you know George, the first George Bush, of course, was the was the, one of the great stories in doing this. That um, racial fear became uh, uh, central to the idea of growing the prison population, and so when when people would say because racial fear was so dominant, when people would say, "Well, look." Half the prison population is African Americans. Uh, the the regular the the normal U.S. citizen wouldn't hear that as oh my God prisons are racially disproportionate. That person would say yeah, those are the dangerous people, and uh, we're glad we're, it's a good thing we're locking them up. And so there was this this really not too subtle racial injustice component to the growth of the prison system. Right. Right. And what are some examples of the policies um, that highlight the extreme nature of the punishment imperative? <laughs> well, I talked about the three strikes you're out, two strikes you're out, no strikes you're out. Um, so the, the, what the system did is once it, once it got you in its clutches, it, it wouldn't let go of you. So uh, parole terms got extended uh, and uh, uh, people would be released from prison, and then would and then would have um, a whole wide range of restrictions imposed on them. Uh, restrictions that most uh, free people would have trouble um, abiding by, um, and uh, and those restrictions would be uh, in some places, not all, not everywhere, but in some places, so uh, heavily enforced that the rate of going back to prison was very high. Um, and it was c- quite a different rate than the rate of getting rearrested, ironically. So 
It would not be unusual, for example, for a cohort of people released from prison in a given year to um, uh, to have half of them go back to prison, but uh, uh, and of that half that goes back to prison, less than half experiencing an arrest. So, how are they going back to prison? Uh, they they uh, didn't report to their parole officer. They turned in a dirty urine. They uh, they uh, were. Uh, caught living in a place that was not uh, legal for a par- parolee to live. Uh, they, um, uh, they, the, the parole officer began to worry about who they were consorting with, who they were spending time with, uh, on and on and on. So violations um, of parole rather violations than of actual crimes. Rather than actual crimes, correct. Wow, I see. And yeah, Sorry, go ahead. Well, so... Um, and then the Get Tough movement be- became a surveillance um, mechanism in the schools. So in, in inner city schools in particular, uh, a, a closer level of surveillance of youth would lead to quicker intervention into their lives. And because we had this idea that there were these super predators being born around us, uh, you know, we would react very quickly to, to deviance on the part of young people in urban school settings and 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 those and i know there's this idea that urban schools are are uh, behavioral disasters where nobody none of the students are under control but the point is there's a lot of control being put on them and and uh, and students are being removed from those schools and put into into um, the juvenile justice system now ironically the leading indicator of the of the drop in the number of prisoners in the U.S. has been the juvenile justice system, which has been uh, declining in size for 20 years. And um, because this idea that we had these super predators around the, that we should be very scared was just so not only wrong, it was exactly the opposite. Uh, young people are getting arrested at much lower rates than previous cohorts. Uh, there's a there's a very strong cohort effect on arrest rates for youth. Today's youth are much less likely to be arrested, much less likely to be involved in serious crime than youth uh, uh, 20 years ago. And uh, and so um, what we what we now know is that crime is a product of a much more complex set of indicators just than what an individual calculates he can get away with, and investments made in other places have much longer uh, and much deeper impact. Right. And as your, uh, the, the subtitle of your book indicates, you argue in the book that, that uh, uh, since the uh, uh, past, um, since the year 2000, roughly, there's been a steep decline in the, the, the prison population and that, that the, there's a, a waning of this punishment imperative, what are some of the signs that that, that indicate uh, this positive direction? Well, so um, uh, nationally, the prison population is about is down uh, uh, almost twenty percent from its peak. Now, this is a very again, it's a very state specific issue. Some states are continuing to uh, grow. Uh, I live in, as I said, I live in Montana, and Montana is a state that has a growing prison population, but there are really only about four states that are continuing to grow their prison population. And some states have had really dramatic drops in their prison population. New Jersey, for example, is uh, more than 40% drop in its prison population. Um, 
the pandemic, um, we're not all sure of, we're not exactly sure of all the mechanisms about how this works, but the pandemic is associated with declines in prison populations almost across the board. Um, and some states quite remarkably so. California, uh, the California prison system was held to be unconstitutional in the way that it handled um, its uh, uh, medical care and uh, forced the state of California to to um, implement new laws. And the California prison system has declined by a third. Uh, um, and it's actually declined by more than that now. So what's happening is that um, we're beginning to reap the benefits of dropping crime rates. And and legislatures are not passing get tough laws anymore. The get tough law period sort of really ended in the 90s. Uh, and, uh, uh, and some of the rollback is happening, particularly around uh, drug related crime. Um, the problem is that uh, to get to get to the, the current rate of decline, uh, uh, to get back to where we were in the early 1970s, will take uh, half a century. So an aggressive uh, uh, legal reform agenda is necessary to be able to return to a more reasonable level of incarceration. All right. And what would you say are the main motivators in the shift away from the punishment imperative since the, the late 90s or early 2000s? Some people are worried about how expensive prisons are. Um, and, and they are expensive compared to other ways of doing things. Um, but I think that sort of the central political motivation is racial disparity. And I think the nation's growing consciousness of its, of it, of its responsibility for uh, a history of uh, unfair racial policies includes the growth of the prison system and I think people are motivated to people of goodwill are motivated to try to do something about that. It's it's not easy because it involves. I mean, if you watch the confirmation hearings of the newest Supreme Court justice, you can see that there's a lurking, scare tactic, uh, demo, uh, demagoguery agenda that's available to anybody who wants to run on it, uh, and it it sort of writes itself. And it couldn't have been more uh, more symbolically meaningful. There, here was a highly educated, highly accomplished black woman, and we were talking about child pornography for some reason. And um, uh, so, uh, so it's there. But I think there, that 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 it, it doesn't work anymore. So, for example, about four years ago, the the one of the papers in Florida ran a series of exposés about repeat crimes by people who had been released from prison for a sex offense and their and their repeat criminality in the in the in the eighties that would have been just red meat and it didn't go anywhere even with even with the current folks in charge it didn't go anywhere in Florida it didn't lead to twenty seven bills and people standing in front of steps saying I'm going to solve this problem now I'm not saying it's permanently ended and you know the Right now, there's a currently a spike in homicides that has reactivated an agenda of the get tough movement. I think, but it doesn't seem to be playing out with as much power as it certainly as it did in the '80s and '90s. Right, and do you you it seems like you're saying that this move or shift away from the punishment imperative has at least some 
bipartisan support in in the American political landscape. A lot of it has a lot of bipartisan support, and then at the state level, in many states, it's actually the uh, the uh, you know the the the, re- the Republicans who are leading the conversation. This Chamber of Commerce doesn't think prisons are good economic policy, and uh, uh, and so. And that's really, I think, why we're not going to uh, that period of time when when get tough really worked is never is not going to return in the same way it did. For purely economic reasons, in other words, even sort of a fiscal conservative. No, uh, no I think I think um, so. What that's one. I think there's a coalesce a, co- a, a coalescence of um, you know forces, and that's certainly one. But I also think. I think everybody got the racial, you know, dog whistle nature of the of the get tough agenda, and people don't want to go there again. In general, I, there are plenty of people who are happy to go there, but they don't. They're not a majority anymore, and they don't run things anymore. Right. And what's the program of justice reinvestment? So justice reinvestment is the idea that if you can reduce the size of the prison population, you save. Uh, money and you take that money and and invest it in communities that have had problems with safety. That what makes that that idea particularly salient is that there's a lot of good research now suggesting that the, one of the major causes of the drop in crime that has been that has lasted really uh, two two decades or or more um, has been the the development and the strengthening of local um, um, NGO-related capacity, particularly in, in poor places, the poorest neighborhoods and cities. We don't have the equivalent of that going on in very broadly in rural areas. And that's why rural incarceration rates are staying high while urban incarceration rates are declining. But uh, if we can find a way of making the inv- similar kinds of investments in, in the rural areas, that will that will bring down their contribution to the prison population. What's what I think is what I think has taken hold is this idea, and it's and it's related to the deterrence idea. That uh, but we thought that if you if we make crime so the consequence of crime so nasty, people won't choose crime. But the deterrence idea also holds if you make uh, more attractive the idea of not committing crimes, people won't choose crime. And I think we are um, beginning to experience. That that um, investments that create alternatives for people's lifestyles are much much more powerful than threats at uh, at uh, at reducing engagement in crime because people don't naturally want to do crimes and it's not you don't sit around and go like ah I think I'll, I think I have fun having doing five hundred crimes this year um, uh, that thinking doesn't dominate um, criminological discourse anymore. Right. And so your book uh, is, is, I think, extremely hopeful about the direction of prison policy in the U.S. Uh, your book was published in, in 2014. Uh, you kind of touched on this before, but based on what has happened since then, do you continue to maintain that sense of hope? Yes. Uh, with one caveat, I, I'm actually more hopeful than I was then. I think this, I think the changes are, are getting rooted more deeply in the politics. And, uh, uh, I, I, I uh, p- prosecutors are running on crime reform agendas. Uh, nobody gets elected just on tough on crime. I mean, 
Josh Hawley may think he does, but I don't think <laughs> I don't think it's going to work for him the way he thinks it does. Um, there, I do have this caveat. Right now, there is a a a, a, a jump in gun related crime. <laughs> And, uh, and it has generated a conversation about what to do about it. And it's very early days, and then no one knows where it's going to go. The two things that I would say are, you know, uh, one of the things that's necessary to have gun-related crime get increased is to have guns. <laughs> and we've had, a, we've had about a 10-year – during the Obama administration, a lot of guns got sold. And then during the pandemic, a lot of guns got sold. And so we have a lot more guns out there. And when you have a lot more guns out there, you you create the capacity for more gun crime, uh, and there has been a a, a, a tick in um, in homicides, particularly in gun related assaults, and I think it's uh, uh, concerning. That said, uh, what the people are, what the law enforcement and, and Republicans are saying is, see, you do bail reform, you defund the police, you get more crime. But the but even the least sophisticated kind of analysis shows that. The places that did bail reform don't have more higher rates of growth in gun crime than the places that didn't do bail reform. Bail reform has nothing to do with this. It's a, it, it relates to the socioeconomic implications of a pandemic. And, um, and as much as defund the police has all this rhetoric associated with it, nobody's defunded the police. <laughs> the police budgets <laughs> haven't been attacked. So there's no experiment there where, hey, we... If the experiment is, hey, you have a conversation about defunding the police, you get more crime. I'd like to understand quite how that works. But so the point is, something's happening right now, and it and it has the germs of the of the energy that might produce a get tough movement. But I I just don't see it having the legs. It doesn't feel like there's this groundswell of get rid of all the get rid of all these bad guys, which is the way it was in the eighties and the nineties. Right, right. Well, I certainly hope, for everyone's sake, uh, for the you know, that that your optimism is uh, borne out. Uh, thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. Thank you for asking me. I've I've enjoyed it. Uh, that's wonderful. Uh, that concludes our program. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.